Reducing Crime podcast features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Gloria Laycock headed the Home Office Police Research Group and was founding director of University College London's Jill Dando Institute of Security and Crime Science, the first such institute in the world. We discuss 50 years of policing and crime prevention, repeat victimization, and working with policymakers. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. So, a bit of a milestone. Episode 50. Go on, put your hands up if you've listened to every episode. Okay, just my mum then. Eh, who am I kidding? She has no idea about this podcast. Actually, she's 91 and isn't even really sure what a podcast is. What did you think of the theme tune? For the first four years, the main theme for this podcast was the outro that played over the closing credits for classic 1970s British cop show, The Sweeney. Starting with the previous episode, I flipped to the far more exciting intro theme for the same show. Too exciting though? I'm on the fence, to be honest, so feel free to share your thoughts on Twitter at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. For this 50th episode, nobody better to chat with than a British crime prevention legend who's been involved in criminal justice and the highest levels of government criminal justice policy for 50 years. Gloria Laycock, OBE, worked as a psychologist in the UK prison service for 10 years before moving into the policy realm of the British government. She established and headed the Home Office Police Research Group and was founding director of University College London, UCL's Jill Dando Institute. More on that in the episode. At UCL, she was director of research supporting the What Works Centre for Crime Reduction until 2016. Gloria was awarded her Bachelor of Science in Psychology at UCL in 1968 and a PhD from the same department in 1975. So it's fitting that more than 50 years since she started at that institution, she is Professor Emeritus of Crime Science at UCL. She was awarded an OBE and the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2008 for services to crime policy. We cover a lot in this episode. It's like a masterclass on the history of crime prevention. You'll learn about the successes and failures of working in crime prevention policy, the importance of tackling repeat victimization as a way to reduce crime, and, and I'm not joking here, what crime prevention success story was objected to by a British government minister because it was too many syllables. Yeah. Gloria and I caught up at the Environmental Criminology and Crime Analysis Conference at the Crown Hotel in the English town of Harrogate, up north in Yorkshire. The Crown Hotel is one of the oldest in the town, and the visitor's book includes luminaries such as Lord Byron. It's a delightful place. It was late afternoon, so we settled into the hotel's lounge, skipped the afternoon tea, and went straight for the gin. Well, and also they're just playing this elevator lift music in the background. I feel like I've got gin and tonic on the scene. I'm just going to nod off nicely here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'd swim in that gin and tonic. <laughs> That's the idea. Is that a marmalade one? It is. Who'd have thought there's such a thing as marmalade gin, but it's bloody marvellous, yeah. You like it? We had one the other night. I'm embarrassed to say it's really quite nice, yeah. Okay. You were the very first director of the Jill Dando Institute for Crime Science. Did you ever think you would get into this? Because you started as a prison psychologist, didn't you? Yes, I did. I mean, I started with an interest in the law when I was at school. Told no way could I ever be a QC because I had a Liverpudlian accent. 
So I thought about psychology because I didn't like the idea that somebody might know something about me that I didn't know. So I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to find out about psychology. Did 10 years in Wormwood Scrubs, which always, it's always fun to say that because it, it's a big prison. <laughs> do, you get, do you get any time off for good behaviour? Yeah, well, I, it was actually... Was it one of the biggest prisons in the country at the time, wasn't it? It certainly was, and it took a lot of the life sentence prisoners. So I did what was actually longer than the average life sentence in Wormwood Scrubs. At the time, it was ten years and I, uh, nine years, and I did ten. Can you imagine people from America listening? They hear a life sentence in America. That means life. When we're going ten years, is longer than the average life sentence. Yeah. I mean, averages are a bit deceptive, as as you know, Jerry. But the maximum is life. But in those days, yeah, there were people who'd murdered their dying wives and confessed to murder and then they're stuck with a life sentence whether they like it or not so yeah it was a fascinating place to be but I stayed there too long basically 10 years was too long yeah that was from like 1968 to 1978 yeah. it feels like a another country back then doesn't it Do, well do you know I was saying to John Eck on the bus earlier today that when I started all the prisoners were white Nine, you know 90 you'd go there and they'd all look white and I went back five ten years ago and they were predominantly black so something massive has happened over that period I mean it's not my area I don't get into it but it has to be a worry there's been increasing diversity but not to that kind of level no not to that kind of level though it is disproportionately focused in London right and I miss London the, the diversity is great what is it Samuel Johnson said in the 1700s when when a person's tired of London they're tired of life oh, yes that's right well, I haven't got to that point yet now I'm a northerner, having retired last year. Instead of ending up for 10 years in Wernwood Scrubs, you know, to become a QC, wouldn't it have just been easier to try and lose your Scouse accent? No, the, the other thing the headmistress said was you needed to know lots of solicitors to get the work. Oh my goodness. Just, and I was a, a woman in the, or a young girl, a 21-year-old, when I went, I left university, went straight into the prison system. I looked about 12. All the prisoners' offices hated me. It was, it was stressful, to be honest. What was that like? Well, I was a psychologist and the prison staff didn't like psychologists. I was a woman and they didn't like women and I was terribly young looking, so they didn't like that either. The prisoners themselves were usually very polite, respectful, if you like, right. more so than some of the staff, to be honest. <laughs> but when I left, I, I left and went to the Home Office Research Unit in central London because Ron Clark suggested it. And I suddenly realised how much happier I felt. It was like a, a kind of weight had come off from the stress of just surviving in that prison for so long. It left me thinking nobody should work as a prison officer for the whole of their career because it's a damaging experience. And I feel a little bit like that about the police sometimes. that Just burn out? They're worn down, I think. and, and it, that's why I'm quite interested in trying to make the policing job as interesting, intellectual as much as anything, uh, so that it's not just tramping the streets and, you know, going on patrol, that they can actually start to think creatively about crime control and, and what they can do to prevent it. It's a bit like demographic researchers, <laughs> they get broken down by age and sex. Honestly, <laughs> there are worse things to be broken down by, I dare say, but um, <laughs> yeah, quite. I remember talking to Sir Dennis O'Connor, and the job was very different back in the 60s mm. when he joined it. There was a lot more clarity about what the job involved. and It was a lot more simple. You could do 30 years and it would be, you know, a long career. Yeah. Now, these frontline jobs in the criminal justice system are incredibly draining. Yeah, I mean, when I started working in the crime prevention unit in the Home Office, again at Ron Clark's suggestion, I was interested in what the crime prevention office actually did. 
And their training involved about a week in a chub lock factory looking at how five lever mortise locks were made. Bloody hell. And they do non-stop security surveys of houses and chemist shops and what have you. And that was what they did. Colossal waste of time. There was no evidence whatsoever that it was any way useful. Did anybody care then about evidence? I mean, you're talking then about no. what, the late 70s? Absolutely, no, they didn't. And they had all this data they were sitting on and they never ever looked at any of it. We set about trying to demonstrate to the crime prevention officers that they could do something with the data, that they could do crime analysis that would lead to something. And we banged on about it for literally years. And then, of course, discovered people like Herman Goldstein and Ron Clark and situational crime prevention and so on, and, and realised that policing could be incredibly rich. That's how Herman Goldstein would describe it. You know, it's so exciting and rich and you can do so much and you can prevent crime. Was there a lot of transnational, transatlantic cooperation between people like yourself and Ron Clark and Herman Goldstein across in the United States? I think the big change in relation to that was when Ron actually emigrated to the United States. Ron Clark moved Ron across Clark the US. Ron Clark moved across, yeah, he left the Home Office. At that time, I'd been seconded by Ron into a policy division to head the Crime Prevention Unit. But instead of being in a little cloister of researchers, I was in a policy division and that meant I could speak on a daily basis to the policy people about what we were finding from the research we were doing. And it was really exciting because you thought you stood a fighting chance of getting somebody to listen to these research results. What's the secret? <laughs> How the hell do you get people to listen to stuff and actually make changes based on research and science? I think you need to understand what motivates them, what they're looking for. I mean, what ministers were looking for was sound bites. Oh, God, really? Uh, sadly, I mean, they wanted results. They didn't really want to wait for the outcome of a pilot study. They just wanted to announce things. You, and you have to understand that's the reality. I was saying the other day, we, we were very, very keen on repeat victimization. All the work on repeat victimization was done from the Crime Prevention Unit, mainly by Ken Pease. And I said to one of the ministers, you know, this is really exciting work, Minister. Great if you could promote it and put in your speeches and things. And he said, repeat victimization, Gloria. It's got too many syllables. You're joking. No, oh, mean, my goodness. Can't you, can't you make it fewer syllables? And I said, well, not really, <laughs> no. He said, can't we call it repeat offending? I said, no, it's not repeat offending. It's repeat victimization. 4% of victims suffer 44% of crime in the UK. That's how powerful it is. And if you can protect them, you can reduce crime. That's what this research is showing. Oh, well, yeah, carry on doing it. I'm not trying to stop you, but I'm not really interested. Oh, my goodness. I, there was no secret on how to engage with them. I failed, basically. You know, for the 20 plus years, more than that, probably, I think I've known you, I've been ever so slightly terrified of you. Was it, was it Shakespeare said, you may be small, but you are a vixen? I'm surprised any policymaker would have the temerity to turn you down. No, well, I, what we did, we did all this research. We tried to persuade the policy people to promote it to the police, and they didn't do anything. And I was getting crosser and crosser. So I went to my boss, who was the head of the police department, and said, look, I gave them all this policy to develop with the police, and they've done nothing. Will you please give it me back? and I'll do it. So 
the Home Office had a, a department that looked after yeah. policing. The Home Office had a, a big department that was responsible for policing with lots of divisions in it. One of those divisions was responsible for crime prevention. Mm -hmm. But they weren't taking repeat victimisation as a concept and really pushing it to the police. And the police were saying, we haven't got any of that. And I'd say to a couple of chief constables, well, you've got no domestic violence? Oh, yeah, we've got that. You've got no commercial burglary? Oh, yeah, we've got that. Well, then you've got repeat victimisation. I mean, domestic violence is the quintessential example of it. So there is an advantage here in the UK where you have a national government, and if you can influence the policing people at the national government, they can actually start to distribute it. Yeah. Did you have more success? Yes, we did. We did several things. One of the things I managed to persuade them to do was to set a performance indicator related to repeat victimisation. The police hated being compared with each other. So instead of that, we said, look, you've got a year. In that year, you've got to be able to count it. Because it's quite difficult, as you know, Jerry, because you've provided guidance on how to do it. That's quite a good idea. I mean, there's no point trying to move forward on a metric until you've got some confidence the metric is reliable. Exactly. And just set a simple goal of, exactly. can you measure this reliably? Yeah. So after a year, can you measure it? Yeah, yeah, yeah we can measure it. Yep. The second year, they had to pick anything, whatever offence you like that's repeat victimisation and make it go down. We're not trying to compare you with each other. You can all pick different offences, but you've got to do it. And then I left and the whole thing sort of collapsed because I think the Audit Commission took over responsibility for performance indicators and performance measures. And they were always interested in comparing forces because they thought that competitive edge would, right. would motivate them. To be honest, I've always been a bit disappointed that the police don't focus on reducing the probability of a victim being hit again, because whichever offence we looked at, it was really important. They were being repeatedly victimised. And over time, they start to just not bother reporting the victimisation? Well, indeed, absolutely. You know, why didn't you report it? Well, I, I told the police I was burgled last time, and now I've been burgled again. What's the point? Right. And then that did cause a problem for the police, because when they went to a victim and said, have you been burgled before? And they said, yeah, three times this year. Yeah. The police were a little bit reluctant to record it because their figures would go all pear-shaped, and they, you know, no one was going to thank us for that. But I think the principle is really to say, analyse your crime data and bear in mind you're trying to prevent it. So you're trying to look for opportunities that enable those crimes. Hotspots, I mean, Heaven's talking to you about hotspots. Um, you know all about hotspots. I've, I've heard of them, yeah. yeah. They sound like they're a good idea. We should do something about that. Absolutely. I mean, there's a staring you in the face hotspot. What are you going to do? And what kind of hotspot is it? What's it a hotspot of? Yeah. And why is it a hotspot? And if it's a hotspot of repeat victimisation, like a hot point almost, can your crime analysis tell me where the next crime is going to happen? Well, with repeat victimisation, we kind of can. Yeah, I mean, the, the work that Shane Johnson and Kate Bowers have been doing at, at UCL in the Jill Dando Institute was looking at near repeats. UCL being University College University London. College London. Well, Jill Dando, just to, the background to that, she was a really famous TV personality. And she and Nick Ross, amongst other things, did Crime Watch in the UK. That was a very popular programme. Incredibly Amazing. popular. She was beautiful. She was successful. She was smart. And she was shot in the back of the head by somebody. No motive that anyone could work out. And the whole country was horrified. I think that was in 1999. 
and her friends and colleagues, Nick Ross and her fiance, Alan Farthing, and, and Sir John Stevens, who was the commissioner in the Met, they all decided they wanted to do something to remember her by. And Nick Ross, her co-presenter on Crime Watch, had a bee in his bonnet about criminology, if I'm honest. He sort of thought it was a total waste of space. Well, he still kind of does. Uh, I know, it's embarrassing. I mean, I actually, some of my best friends are criminologists, as they say. I mean, I wish Nick wouldn't be quite so vocal about it. Well, you know, we all have that one friend, that one criminologist. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, he was, he kind of decided that he wanted to raise some money with everybody else's help to set up an institute of crime science basically to get far more scientific thinking into crime control. But before this you were, you said at the police research group, didn't you? Well, interestingly, when I was in the crime prevention unit, we were working with the police and I thought, well, you know what, this is all right, but there's all sorts of other things the police do. Most of it's not crime prevention and there was no central research resource for the police. So I persuaded the head of the police department to set the police research group up. This is less than 30 years ago. This is the biggest part of the criminal justice system at the time, and there is no research taking place at a national level. I mean, there was, but it was all driven by the ministers or the policy people's agendas. The police weren't customers for it. And so I persuaded the head of police department that the police research group should have the police as customers for it, in the sense that we would take note of what their needs were, along with the ministers and the policy people. So basically we had three customers. It's a that, bit radical, isn't it? Actually asking the police what they would like policing research well, to be, be honest, on. And we never really did that. Oh God. The great thing about having three customers is you can go and tell the other two that the third one wants something. <laughs> so you can kind of control the agenda yourself. But it was independent of the Home Office Research Unit. I worked directly to the head of police department. So I was very independent. And the good thing about that was he was very busy and couldn't be bothered. So long as nothing went wrong, I was left alone. And they gave me a million pounds in external research budget. Which 30 years ago was was a a chunk of money. money. And they took it off the police technology research budget. Gordon Wasserman, who was then, and some American colleagues will remember Gordon, he worked in New York for a while. He gave up a million of his seven million budget to do social science research. So I announced that we were going to have a police operations against crime program because I thought if we can get the police working with academics all in partnership, if we can get them to reduce volume crime. It was the early 90s. I mean, that was the crime peak Total right peak. then. Yeah. Total peak. Never been as bad. Yeah, and if we can get them to reduce that, that will free up so much time for the police to do serious stuff. But I tell the academics they all had to bid with a police partner. That was a first, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for the UK. So they, you know, they, they put these bids in and they were like kind of six bids to evaluate Neighbourhood Watch and it's a bit lame. to be honest I was really disappointed because there was nothing radical, there was nothing new, there was nothing what we would now call action research where they got together and said we're going to solve this problem or we're going to work together and develop something from scratch. It was all let's evaluate what's kicking around. But isn't that part of the struggle when you're so in the weeds Mm. All you can see is the weeds that are around you. It's, I think I see it in academia as well. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, by getting grants and other bits and pieces. The real currency of academia is ideas. 
Absolutely, and I was quite disappointed at the unimaginative nature of some of the bids that came in. We did spend the money and we set up a, a little crime prevention unit paper series. I fondly imagined the colour of these booklets was claret, but Ken Pease used to call them the brownies. Well, on the plus side, if you did that in America, people think you were sending them cookies. If you say, come to this meeting, we have, <laughs> yeah, we yeah, have brownies. brownies. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, bring your brownies. We were able to publish them really frequently and we sent them everywhere. We, we sent them to New Zealand, we sent them to Australia. Was it easy to find academics to work with the police? Yes, it was. Well, the biggest problem I found with the academics was that I wanted them to do the research and then tell me, what did you find and what are the implications for action? Oh, that's not exactly a, an unreasonable request. Well, it is if you're an academic because they never want to do that last bit. But so what? You've done all this work. Yeah. And don't tell me we need more research. Yeah, and don't tell me we need more research on the last page. I'm not interested. I want to know, what are you telling the police? And so they'd write the little booklets and what they'd done, and they were to be short. And then they'd write a one-page summary of the research and bullet points for action. And they moaned and they groaned, but most of them actually did it. It was reflective of the academics' real reluctance to take a risk and say what they thought, not what they'd found hardcore, you know, I can defend this in court kind of conclusion. And then you get academics endlessly moaning that people in the policy world don't pay any attention exactly. to them. Exactly. No, I, I had no problem with saying, we've done all this work, I'm going to stick my neck out here, here's what I think the implications are, that would have been perfectly fine. I mean, at one point, a couple of police officers said to me, I'm sick to death of these brownie booklet things. Every time one comes, my chief tells me to summarise the implications for our force, and you keep sending them, will you, will you stop? And I thought, no, I won't stop. Yeah, read it and do something. Now, you took a career break because I remember you spent some time across in the US. I remember being very envious. And then we met in Australia. Yeah, that's you right. You came around to dinner at my place. This is like 20 years ago on the warmest night in Australian history. And I didn't have any air conditioning. You were a trooper. Oh, no. I, I loved Australia. I mean, I had an amazing just over a year in the United States as well when Jeremy Travis was head of NIJ. Sally Hillsman was there. It gave me time to think. And I wrote probably my favourite paper I've ever written, which was called Hypothesis-Based Research, The Repeat Victimisation Story. We had 15 years of funding on repeat victimisation. The first project was on burglary, then we showed it was relevant to racial attacks, and we showed it was re relevant to bullying, and we showed you what you could do about it. And we had this programme of work to bring it to the attention of the police, and it went on, you know, years. But that time in the US was an opportunity for me to write it up, which I wouldn't have to done be, otherwise. To be a moment to be reflective and yeah, try and exactly. put it all in place. Exactly. And then I went to Australia for four months to the AIC. And I don't think many people are aware of the Australian Institute of Criminology, the AIC, but it's a fantastic place. It's a super place. And at that time, they had one of the best criminological libraries did, yes. on the planet. It was. Do you remember when we used to go to libraries instead of just visiting them electronically? Well, like, they had a wonderful librarian staff. Oh, you could find place. anything. Yeah. What had happened was I, I'd persuaded the Home Office to let me stay in Australia for another year. Uh, but Ron Clark said, oh, apply for this job for Jill Dando Institute. That's right, because this was just after the, all the money had been raised from the public the money after had been Jill raised. Dando had been That's murdered. That's right. She, they raised a million pounds. And she was murdered in 99, so this would have been, what, 2000 or so? Yeah, 2001, they were advertising for a director, and I was going to stay in Australia. 
Ron said, oh, apply for it. He said, the time to decide when you want a job is when you're offered it. And I thought, oh, that makes sense. So I, I applied for it. Um, and I went home after the interview and the, and the provost at UCL phoned me and said, we'd like to offer you the job. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And then thought, oh, my God, I was supposed to think about it. <laughs> Flattered, whatever. I was so excited. And yes, yes, definitely. And so I turned up at UCL with a million quid in their bank and a part-time secretary. So... Why crime science? I mean, you're setting up at University College London, the, the world's first center for crime science. How was that different from all the criminal justice places in the US and all the criminology places in the UK? There were several issues. First of all, it was outcome focused. Everything we did was really about I'm not going to just say preventing crime or reducing crime, but controlling it. So you weren't about creating some obscure theory that would end up sitting on the shelves for the next 50 years. We very much weren't and we weren't particularly interested in the court system or whether probation worked. What we were interested in was making crime go down and we actually inherited a huge amount of really useful work from Herman Goldstein on problem solving, from Ron Clark on situational crime prevention, from environmental criminology generally. We just pinched it. Which I should say is not about oil spills in Alaska, but environmental Absolutely. criminology yeah. is about the criminology of the built environment and the world in which we live in. Yeah, much bigger than the built environment. It's understanding that situations and opportunities cause crime. And in that sense, it's the huge environment. It's systems, it's management processes. It's the way the world's organized. If you go around, there are opportunities for crime everywhere. And if you can't control them, then you can't control crime. So it was very much focused on an outcome. And that takes you automatically really to policing and how the police operate. Or at least what they also see and experience. Yes. I always like going to frontline police because they're the people who actually are on the ground. They actually see the opportunities on the ground. Absolutely. And very often can't do anything about them. I mean, one of the things, just going back to the Crime Prevention Unit, one of the things I did there, I went to Hendon, the police college in, in, in London, and said to the police, they ought to do something about what? Who are they and what's what? And they said the banks ought to do something about credit cards. And this was in 1986 or something. Credit card fraud was going through the roof. So let me come back to that. That's a really good way to frame it. Go to people and say they ought to do something about what? And then just have the people that you're talking to say who the they are exactly. and what the what is. That's a great idea. When, we were in, when I was in the police research group in the Home Office, car manufacturers ought to do something about car crime. And they wouldn't. The Home Secretary called all the manufacturers into the Home Office and said, you've got to do something about car crime. And they also said, it's terribly difficult. You know, we can't do it. It's because our cars are so popular, Ford said. The Ford Escort's so popular, that's why it gets stolen. So we paid Loughborough University to do some research in the engineering department to, to demonstrate that you could develop a lock that was a deadlock on cars. Of course, they knew that. They just, they just said, didn't want to spend the money. Yeah, exactly. We went naively saying to them, hey, look, you, you can because Loughborough University have just done this. And they said, yeah, well, we don't want to. Yeah. So what we did was in the police research group, we published the car theft index, which ranked the manufacturers by May against the cars that were stolen. And Nothing we like a bit of shaming. Absolutely. We called them back into the Home Office and the Home Secretary said, next time we publish this, we're naming the manufacturers at the top of the list and we're going to tell everybody and 
I remember the man from BMW said, well, we're not going to be at the top of that list. And they all went away and they all voluntarily put deadlocks and immobilizers on all vehicles at the point of manufacture without any legislation. The legislation came later. I mean, you say voluntarily, but... Well, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> they weren't exactly falling over themselves to do it until it was pointed out to them that nobody wanted to be at the top of this list. They were coerced yeah, by Gloria Lake. Well, they were coerced a little bit. But uh, <laughs> actually, sometimes people say, what are you most proud of and I think the most thing I'm most proud of in my 50-year career is coercing those manufacturers and we were watching car crime tumble from 1993 onwards and it just carried on going down. That must have left you inspired to the idea that you really could use crime science to engineer out crime. That's exactly what happened. Um, when we first set up the Gildando Institute we were in the School of Public Policy at UCL and for some reason best known to UCL self, the then provost decided to move us and um, they put us in the engineering faculty. Now can you imagine criminologists exactly. or criminal justice people saying we're moving you to engineering? Absolutely. I mean it was inspired and I loved it. I mean it sounds like it should be insane but it was inspired. Well I think it was inspired because it meant I didn't have to justify science. I mean what engineers do is solve problems that's what they do. Scientists think about theories and you know grand schemes and the meaning of life and God knows what the outer universe. It's fascinating stuff. Engineers design the world around us and they base that design on their experience, on their knowledge, on mathematics, on their knowledge about material sciences. In other words, they use all the sciences and they use a huge body of knowledge and they build things. And if they don't work, they think, oh my goodness, it didn't work. Why didn't it work? They don't think, let's sack the engineer who built it. They think, let's fix it. And they don't seem wedded to particular sort of theoretical constructs or Absolutely. political positions. Absolutely. If the bridge falls down, build a better bridge. Well, why, why did it fall down? A great example, actually. I mean, they do make mistakes. In London, there's a bridge. I think it's the Albert Bridge. And at one time, it was called the Wobbly Bridge. The Wobbly Bridge, yeah. Because it wobbled if people walked over it. And they realised that that happened because people walking in step, because it's a suspension bridge, it amplified the swing. So this particular bridge then had a notice on it that said, if you're in the army, please brace your step as you walk over this bridge. So when they built the Millennium Bridge, they forgot about the Wobbly Bridge. And the moment it was opened, it wobbled something dreadfully because they'd forgotten what they'd learned from the Wobbly Bridge. That sounds very criminal justice to forget what you've learned from exactly. before. Exactly, but they now understand what went wrong and they fixed it. Right. That's why I think crime science in a way has, well, it's kind of embraced engineering, partly because we're in the engineering faculty, but also because it's the right thing to do, solve problems. But now you're also, and you know, I've, I've known your department for 20 years, also has computer scientists yes. and you also have people from a whole range of other disciplines. It seems very multidisciplinary, atheoretical. It is very multidisciplinary. I mean, you have some theories that you're... Well, you know, the, the theories... Well, exactly, theories. that's right. The theories, as far as we're talking about crime, the theories come from environmental criminology, from the absolute conviction that situations need to be controlled if you want to control crime. And the way to control situations is to engage with engineers and planners and designers 
So one of the things we've done, for example, and relatively recently, is set up the Dawes Centre for Future Crime. Shane Johnson is the director of it. And we did that because we're very conscious of all the wonderful technologies being developed with nobody giving an iota of thought to what the consequences for crime are going to be. And those new technologies are opening up huge opportunities. The biggest crime growth area in the UK, I suspect everywhere, is cybercrime. Yeah. And nobody even thought about what they were going to do about crime. What's also interesting about cybercrime is because so little is known about the offenders, there's very little work being done in you know, the long-term root causes of crime. Well, that's what's so fascinating, isn't it? The only way to control cybercrime is situationally, yeah. really. It comes back to the old discussion about you know, when people are jumping the turnstiles. Yeah. You know, what are your options? Do you want to reduce poverty to reduce the incentive to jump the turnstile? or just design a better turnstile. Yes, exactly, exactly. But with crime science especially being very pragmatic, let's just have less crime, what's been the reception from the sort of more traditional sociological criminology crowd that are more about root causes of people engaging in crime? I mean, to be honest, it's not only the criminology crowd that think root causes and think poverty and, and parenting and all, all those things, and they're correlates of crime. But they're not causal. There are loads of rich people who commit dreadful crimes. Because they have the opportunity. Exactly. It's about, it's about the opportunity. Why is this not seen a sort of massive growth of crime science? The traditional approach, the traditional approaches to of criminology still have... That's a really interesting have... question, actually, Jerry. I'll tell you why. From the social psychologists will tell you about something called the fundamental attribution error. And the fundamental attribution error says, if I see you breaking the law or doing something you shouldn't do, I will say you're a dreadful person, you need to be arrested, and I will attribute it to a characteristic of you, it's your personality. If I do something that breaks the law, I will interpret it in terms of the situation within which I found myself. It wasn't my fault. I got no money. The kids were driving me mad. The classic example I use is, you know, there have been times when I've had to drive pretty fast down the motorway, exactly. down the freeway. But when somebody goes blasting past me, I always go, asshole. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's a fundamental characteristic of human nature to do this and it permeates everybody's criminal justice system. So our starting point is if we see somebody doing something bad, they're bad people. But criminologists are often far to the left in terms of being more understanding of the offenders. Yeah, I mean, that, you know the old joke about the, you know, a woman lying in the road after being assaulted and the criminologist runs over to her and says, oh, I do hope the person that did this is okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's not just about them being a bad person needing to be arrested. Some people, and I have a lot of sympathy with this, to be absolutely honest, would say, well, you know, they're poor, they've got no money, that they're, they're desperate. And the worry is that the state the world's in at the moment, there's a real danger that crime's going to start creeping up again because people are going to be so desperate. Yeah. I definitely worry about that. The changes worldwide and inequality Absolutely. are starting to become I mean, an whether issue. Whether those changes More are going to be so horrendous that people are sufficiently desperate, they'll overcome all these security measures. But the other criticism of situational crime prevention is it turns everywhere into Fort Knox and nobody wants to live in Fort Knox. It's just oppressive. And it also excludes people. It's exclusive. It's not nice. So 
We've kind of wriggled around on this in the crime science area. What we would say is that crime science is about reducing crime ethically, aesthetically, with due care, to being decent about it. So those riders come with it. So when we're saying we're multidisciplinary, we are, and criminology is very much one of the disciplines we're interested in, as is ethics. The inclusion of ethics is an underappreciated part. My feeling is that crime science has to depend on data. And if you want good data, it's going to have to come from the public. And the public are not going to provide good data to the police or good intelligence or good information if they don't trust them. So police legitimacy has to be a fundamental element to successful crime science. Because without it, we're not going to get the data and be able to solve problems. Absolutely right. We won't know what the problems are, and you can't solve a problem if you don't know what it is. Right. Getting the problem right is so important. I mean, I think it was Einstein who said, you know, if you tell me to solve a problem, I'll spend 55 minutes working out what the problem is and five minutes solving it, and he was really right. Yeah. So you retired last year, but for somebody who's notionally retired, here you are at a conference contributing to it. So, so much for that retirement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think people do retire these days. I'm trying to write a book actually on crime science and particularly for the police. It's focusing on undergraduate police officers who are starting policing degrees. And I want to try and make it accessible. One of the things John X said in his book, and I absolutely agree with him, he's read some of these academic journal articles and, he's, and he didn't understand them and thought he was an idiot. And I've read them and I haven't understood them and I've thought I'm an idiot. And actually, they're badly written. No, I've read them and I didn't understand them and I know I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, exactly, but you get that. I certainly don't get everything, but they're so impenetrable somehow. I mean, it's not necessary. And the academics don't make any effort to, to reach out. And then they complain that nobody listens to them. Some academics put themselves out to write in, in convoluted sentences and polysyllabic words, and it's just... There are whole areas I could talk about that seem that way, but I'll get cancelled if I talk about Well, exactly. I mean, we both agree that it's hard work to write with clarity. I can't remember his name. I think it's Pascal in the 1500s wrote to his friend and said, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Exactly, yes. So in the big picture, what are the key things that, in terms of crime science that you've learned? There's a couple of big points I'd want to get across to the police in this book. One is that science is exciting because it's about discovery. And nothing's more exciting than getting a data set and poodling around in it and finding some little gem. I mean, repeat victimization is a good example of a little gem. Or if you've done a little experiment to see if something works and it actually did. I mean, that's fantastic. But what I really want the police to do is to think. I want them to think like an engineer thinks, to be able to find and articulate the problems and then be determined to solve them. And the thing about the solution is it is not necessarily arrest. It is not necessarily patrol. Mm -hmm. It is not necessarily from that traditional toolkit of policing methods. Well, I think it's a good message that would come out right now because nobody has the resources to do that. Absolutely. They don't have the resources. And as technologies are developing all the time, those old methods aren't going to work. No. You can't patrol your way out of cybercrime or organized crime solve the problem. And if you don't solve it first time, tweak it a bit and try again.
but don't be scared to make mistakes. That's one of the challenges. I think the fear of failure yeah. prevents people trying things at all. Absolutely. And it's very easy for me to say to the police, you know, make a few mistakes, it'll be fine. Learn from your mistakes. Their careers yeah, shoulder exactly. the risk, yes. That's I right. mean, the best mistakes to learn from are somebody else's, basically. <laughs> right. But if you can't do that's that... That's the whole reason my life is here. Well, exactly. Everybody yeah. else can learn from mine. I sent my friend a birthday card recently and it says, I've learned so much from my mistakes, I'm going to make a few more. <laughs> it's, the police are in a difficult position because if they make mistakes, the media jump on them. Yeah. It's easy to say this is what it would be nice if they could do actually doing it is incredibly difficult and I think we need to get the media off their back, we need to get politicians off their back and we need to get people to accept that the police are human too, they will make mistakes. If it's a genuine mistake they need support, if it's corrupt or inappropriate they need slamming hard and that's a different problem. Yeah, the realisation that so much of this is human beings interacting with other human yes. beings is going to result in mistakes. Absolutely. It absolutely is. I mean, stuff happens. And if you take risks, you will make mistakes. And, and it would be great if the police could be encouraged to do that. There's a really interesting little piece of work from Australia, actually, in, in Queensland and Victoria, where they try to do problem-oriented policing and problem-solving. And they asked the police, were they encouraged to make mistakes? And they said, absolutely, no way are we allowed to make mistakes. Right. And that was in two police agencies that purport to encourage problem solving. Well, I worry now in the post-George Floyd world. Mm, absolutely. And the post, you know, Sarah Everhard and, you know, yeah. you just identify all these cases in different countries. In five and ten years' time, we're just going to see a whole generation of police leaders who are so risk-averse. Yes it's going to see a contraction of policing yeah. to just doing the basics that we know won't get criticised. I mean, and that's a failing to the public. It really is a failing to the public, but I think that's why le the legitimacy agenda is so important and the police know what the ground rules are. The danger is that there's a culture of covering up error, and I understand why they do that, but it, they need to be able to say, we shouldn't have done this, it was a mistake. But we as a community need to give them the space to be able to do that. Absolutely do. And, and it's about acknowledging that we're all human, we will make mistakes, but we'll learn from them, basically. And I'm very excited about the future. Good. Because I think it's just got to be right, what we're doing. We've, we've got so many examples of where it's worked. And when you look at what's happened to volume crime, and we can tell you why it happened, we understand why it went down. So you're not really going to retire anytime soon, are you? Well, I mean, it depends on what you mean by retire. I think what retire means is I'm carrying on working but not being paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a mistake. I should have stayed where I was. Well, I appreciate you sticking around with us. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for taking some time, Gloria. I enjoyed it hugely. That was episode 50 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Harrogate, England, in June 2022. Drop by reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can find transcripts of this and every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime, or my personal handle at jerry underscore Ratcliffe. Instructors, feel free to DM me there for support materials. Be safe, and best of luck.